0: This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I've been talking about the evolution of Bombay since the 1860s. More particularly, I've been looking at the ways in which the decade of 1860s practically made Bombay. In the last episode, I was telling you about the crash of 1865. So far, I've spoken about the wider background and the various ways in which the crash had raised and then dashed the wild hopes of thousands of people who flocked to Bombay. I spoke at length about the modus operandi of the brokers and other speculators. This is episode 5 of Bombay Born, the special series of my podcast History Chatter. This is Anir Today, I wish to talk about the major figures who had virtually engineered the speculation mania. I'll also be talking about one of the financial institutions in the thick of it all. My objective is to show you how a few leading brains had more or less consciously manufactured the crisis, I mean, even though it'll be pointless to hold them responsible for the disaster that followed. Now, some specialists, some stock market commentators often observe that everyone's a genius in the bull run. But the real genius creates a fortune when the bear smashes the market down. Premchand Raichand was the most prominent of these share kings during the 1860s. He was also the most powerful. Premchand, 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 that was the name that deafened your ears from morning to evening during those heady days. It was familiar to every man, every woman, and every child in the street. Crowds of admiring devotees would always be seen going in and out of the precincts of his bungalow, which was invariably accessible to all, the humblest as well as the mightiest. He was a short man, a dapper man, a devout jain of fair complexion, levy of limb and sweet of temper. He carried engaging manners and was entirely free from the pride of wealth. He was only 34 at the time, but carried a most clever financial head on his shoulders. Originally, he was a broker, and did not really make a great deal of business. But he speculated largely in cotton during the progress of the American war and rapidly amassed a great, great fortune. So when the Shermania set in, in the 1863, 64 and 65, he was in such a position that his name and influence were considered essential to the safe launching of every single scheme of the day. If he was not the promoter of a company, he usually received a large number of shares and he would invariably be consulted by the promoters, especially especially during the allotment of shares. And he himself often participated in the distribution of the allotments. So, Premchand Rayachand became the great dispenser of allotments. He distributed them judiciously, first, among the managers of the banks, and second, to the friends of the promoters and to himself, and to other persons, really, who might be useful to them or to the business. Premchand, however, was no ordinary speculator. Those who have read the history of Bombay, of its finances, would readily agree to this description of Premchand by contemporary observers, contemporary to him. And I quote, he was called the keystone of the commercial prosperity of Bombay. Unquote. In cotton trade, he was not only a shipper, but a trader, in partnership with half a dozen eminent European firms which traded in cotton. He also traded in bullion, in opium, gold, and share speculations. Dinshaw Wacha wrote that in financial acumen, he would have been more than a match for the Rothschilds and the Bearings. As you well know, the Rothschilds and the Bearings were the financial wizards of the 19th century, probably the wealthiest bankers in England and in, in America as well and and premchand raichand was just as good if not better if he had been operating in in england or in the us watcher said he would probably have uh, overtaken the rothschilds and the bearings so um and that's also um uh, validated by the fact that premchand himself was completely ruined by the crash like everyone else and yet Such was his marvelous optimism, his confidence in himself, and his business courage. And such was his inveterate love of speculation, that he was able to strike back and accumulate a handsome fortune once again. It was but obvious that he held unparalleled influence over all bankers. That influence, due of course to the weak and irregular managerial element of the old Bank of Bombay, was almost absolute in connection with that ill-fated institution. So how did Premchand operate? He had simply to scribble on a bit of paper something like the following, to the manager of the Bank of Bombay that message would be treated as a command which could not be disregarded or disobeyed even for a moment. So here goes um, that scrap of paper. And I quote, My dear Mr. Blair, Saurabhji Jamsedji Boy, son of late Sir Jamsedji Boy, wishes to have a loan of 5 lakhs for three months on his personal security. Will you give him? He's safe for anything, unquote. Here's another example. This time, the Secretary of the Bank writes to Premchand. And I quote, My dear Premchand, How many lakhs do you think we might give S&N Nanaboy at present? Faithfully yours, James Blair. And Premchand answers, My dear Blair, S&N Nanaboy are quite safe for 5 lakhs. Yours sincerely, Premchand. Unquote. But Premchand was not alone, even though he was the mightiest at the time. Pestinji Karsetji Shroff, Dr. Diver, George Taylor, and Atmara Madhavji were some of the other major leaders of the speculation mania. To a lesser extent, Messrs. Jamnadas and Devidas, Chunilal Motilal, and Burjurji Sorabji Lahaiwala were um, some of the other big bulls of the time. If Premchand, uh, personally for himself and his partners, in speculation, exhausted the resources of the Bank of Bombay, Jamnadas and Devidas exhausted in a similar manner the resources of Alliance Financial. Let me now take up a case study. The Bank of Bombay was the most prominent financial institution of the day. Let's begin from the beginning, meaning its origin or formation. I'll also look into the prime movers, the manner of transacting monetary business, and the reasons which led to its final collapse. So Bank of Bombay was started in 1840. With a modest capital of 52 lakhs. It was uh, set up under a legislative enactment. A law was passed setting it up. There were several sections of caution and limitation for the safety and stability of the bank. I'm talking here of that legislation, the law, which set up the Bank of Bombay in 1840. So, obviously, Bank of Bombay had a most prosperous carrier until the new charter came up in 1863. So how did the new charter differ from the old uh, law which had established the Bank of Bombay? The greatest safeguard the bank had in its early days was the absolute prohibition against advancing money without substantial security and even then, only to a limited extent. Advances on personal security, which became the norm since the Bank Act of 1863, was never allowed. The 1863 Act, on the other hand, contained a provision allowing advances on securities, and I quote, of other public companies in India." Now, the difference between the old and the new act was this. The former was in many ways restrictive. This was certainly due to the bank being the first state bank of its kind in the presidency, in the Bombay presidency. Now, In the new act, some of those restrictions were partly modified, but many more were entirely removed. The disappearance of the majority of restrictive provisions was the signal, really, for the reckless banking that immediately followed. So, as soon as the bank was launched on its new career, the secretary, Mr. James Blair, and the Deputy Secretary, Mr. Ryland, determined to avail themselves of all the powers in the act, irrespective of the board, to which they paid only nominal respect. Among the directors, Sir Kawasji, I mean Kawasji Jahangi Redimani, alone, jealously watched the interests of the bank. but. He had already retired a few months after the new act was passed. Partly owing to his physical infirmity and partly to his having been against the method in which the bank's capital was raised to, to two crores. This is something I'd spoken about in the last episode at some length. In fact, the last episode began with uh, Kawasji Jahangir Redimani being extremely unhappy and living his position as a director of the Bank of Bombay. So, instead of insisting on the old practice which required government paper, guaranteed railway shares, or bullion to be deposited as security for cash credits, Mr. Blair commenced in August 1863 to grant such advances on personal security only It meant that a sicker, a loan sicker had only to write a promissory note by the borrower or joint borrowers and they no longer required securities or any additional security or surety really. The first of these I'm talking about these uh, fresh loans without sureties or securities. The first of these loans was for a lakh of rupees. It was given to Mr. Rayachand Deepchand. And who was Rayachand Deepchand? He was, of course, the father of Premchand Rayachand. The directors were so occupied either with their own business or in speculation, that though they attended the weekly meetings, they did not really care to scrutinize the advances or to ascertain the sterling worth of securities which were pledged against them, or of the substantial credit of parties to whom cash credits were given on personal security. It'll not be an exaggeration, really, to say that the directors entrusted the destinies of the bank to the secretary, that the secretary left them to the mercy of Mr. Premchand, and that Premchand left him to Providence. Let me give you an example. In fact, let me give you quite a few instances of the way in which the bank was defrauded. So, on 14th of July, 1864, Mr. Sorabji Jamsetji Jijivoy obtained a cash credit of 5 lakhs, giving no other security for its repayment than his promissory note, which was as worthless as the paper on which it was written. On the 1st of October, 1864, Dr. Diver... George Taylor and Atmaram Madhavji, who are also called the notorious gunpowder trio, obtained a loan of five and a half lakhs, again on signing blank promissory notes. This time, the money was actually received by Premchand Chand, which he promptly invested in his speculation in the back bay scheme. What was the loss, really, to the bank from Mr. Blair's mismanagement? When he was compelled to retire from the institution that he had expertly brought to ruin, the total amount of unrecoverable money was said to be to the tune of 1.5 crores. And I'm talking about 1865. Between May 1865, when the first crash came with the failure of Mr. B.H. Kama to the date of its winding up in January 1868, the directors tried out various measures to revive it, to revive the Bank of Bombay. But the more the efforts of the directors were concentrated on that process, The deeper the bank sank into financial quagmire. Throughout the critical period of two years, the directors entertained the most optimistic views about realizing the securities. This indeed was exceedingly surprising, given that most of the debtors, one after the other, had filed for bankruptcy. The Bank of Bombay Commission had carefully listed the causes for what Wacha calls, and I quote, the most dismal and inglorious chapter of the history of the first state bank in the Bombay presidency, unquote. The first cause was that uh, the Act of 1863, which had removed several useful restrictions and allowed the bank to transact business in an unsafe manner. The second was the abuse of power given by the Act of 1863 by weak and unprincipled secretaries who were acting under the influence of uh, a designing native director And here I'm quoting the language of uh, the commission which looked into the crash of the Bank of Bombay. So they said that these unprincipled secretaries had been acting under the direction of a designing native director, Premchand Raya Chand. The third cause was essentially that the presidents and directors were negligent and failed to do their duty they did not pass bylaws or they did not exercise proper supervision and control over the bank and its secretaries. Fourth, the very exceptional nature of the time required more than ordinary vigilance and care on the part of everyone connected with the bank. Five, the presidents and the directors more than often, they were not conversant with the banking business and they were incapable of managing such an institution as the Bank of Bombay, especially in difficult times. And finally, the sixth cause was the absence of sound legal advice and uh, assistance. So that's how um, I present to you a snapshot of the notorious crash of 1865 the leaders who had engineered it and the sad story the disastrous story of the fall of the bank of bombay i'll be back in the next episode which will be episode six of bombay ball in that episode i'll tell you about the ways in which bombay recovered so there's some good news ahead. This is Anirban. I'll see you next